Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Here's Armstrong and Getty. You're listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty Show. I have been obsessed with the U.S. versus China story for a couple of years now. I don't remember why or how it got on my radar, but man, I just I just suck up everything I can find about it. And uh, we talked to Josh Rogan a while back. This is something about COVID in China or something. Anyway, he's got a new book out, Chaos Under Heaven, Trump G in the Battle for the 21st Century. Josh Rogan is the global opinions columnist for the Washington Post. And, man, some great reviews. I just read the Wall Street re- uh, Journal review on this last night. Is one of the first great books on the, what is going to be the story for the next century or more, the U.S. versus China. Josh Rogan joins us. Josh, how are you, sir? Hey, guys. Great to be back with you. Um, just in general, the, the, my statement correct that this is maybe the biggest story in the world for the next century, U.S. versus China? Yes, not only is the U.S.-China uh, uh, relationship the most important bilateral relationship of our lifetime, that's increasingly obvious, it's also the biggest story for every country in the world because every country in the world is now suffering through a coronavirus pandemic that originated in China. So there are 7 billion people who are suddenly quite aware of the fact that what happens in Beijing doesn't stay in Beijing and that to some degree, and we can debate how much the actions and character of the Chinese Communist Party affect our lives, our national security, our public health, our prosperity in undeniable ways. So that's like an awakening that now is not just, you know, certain people and certain, everybody can agree on that. Now the question is, what do we do about it? Well, uh, we know the answer to this question, but where do you stand on the issue of the origin of the coronavirus, the lab leak theory, uh, the rest of it? You know, I got to tell you, I, I was the, one of the first reporters in April 2020 to publish about the still unproven but very plausible theory that the outbreak was related to a mistake of one of these Wuhan labs. And, you know, for over a year, I was just amazed that no one would talk about it, that people would talk about it, would get insulted and, and, and shouted down. And it was just crazy. And now here we are 18 months after the outbreak and there's still been no investigation. And my point is not that we know that it came from the lab. My point is we, we have to check it out. In other words, we can't rule it out. So we have to check it out. It seems like a pretty, reasonable and obvious thing to say it's always seemed that way to me but now all of a sudden the mainstream media and uh different parts of the government including the biden administration are like oh wait a second you're telling me that there are a bunch of bat coronaviruses next to the outbreak we didn't check out those labs that had all about coronaviruses that's crazy we should check it out so I'm not saying we know it came from the lab. I'm just saying we should probably check it out. We do a lot of media criticism, and so we've talked a lot about the, you know, uh, whether it was uh, it was important to be anti-Trump and Trump was pushing the narrative or whatever it is in the media. But inside a government, that's what's fascinating to me. What was going on, to your mind, inside a government that was causing some scientists to ignore what seems like the most likely cause? Or to actively cover right. it up. That's right. They absolutely did that. It's really important because you're right. It wasn't just the media that wanted to sort of dismiss the lab leak theory because they couldn't they didn't want Trump to be right about anything. You know, like even the broken clock is right twice a day. The guy was bound to be right about something, whether you like him or not. And the media just couldn't deal with that. But inside the government, you had a couple of things going on. One, you had the scientists who were the closest to the lab and who were collaborators with the Wuhan Institute of Virology and all these other bad coronavirus labs in China. Uh, 
calling it a conspiracy theory to cover their own butts because they didn't want anyone to look into the lab because that would mean that we were looking into them. In other words, the lab leak theory doesn't just implicate China. It implicates all of our scientific collaboration with China because we built those labs along with the French. We gave them this technology. We taught them how to play around with viruses, and then they built another part of the lab that they didn't tell us about, and no one was watching it. And that's why the lab leak theory is so sensitive to the scientific community in the U.S. because it implicates us. It implicates Fauci and Collins and all these guys who were doling out the money that is going to these Chinese labs that no one was paying attention to. And that relates to what was going on inside the government, because if you're the intelligence community, if you just think about it, the lab leak theory is true, well, then that's that's bad for them, too, because they missed it, because we spend $86 billion a year on intelligence stuff, and zero of it was pointed at this network of risky labs doing risky research that was funded by U.S. taxpayers. And that's pretty awful if that's true. And that's why, you, and then, of course, you know, the, some of the intelligence guys didn't like the Trump people, and they didn't want them to be right either. And, you know, the media trusted the scientists, and the intelligence guys trusted the same scientists. So it was like a perfect storm of BS. And by the time we started to figure it out, it was all too late. Uh, do you Are you willing to call it a cover-up? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's several cover-ups. There's the, first and foremost, the Chinese Communist Party cover-up, which is not just about the origins, which is about everything. They covered up the scientists. They jailed the whistleblowers. Uh, you know, they jailed the journalists. They kept all of the science that they had away from the Internet. They continue to. To this day, they won't give us vital information that could help us in our response to this. Like how the information that they have while our citizens are getting sick and dying, not just us, people all over the world. That's the first cover-up. The second cover-up is the one by the American scientists uh, who are the friends of the lab, and that's all being revealed now in all these emails that are getting released. But we kind of knew it already. In other words, the scientists went around and they wrote all these papers in scientific journals that said, it's a conspiracy theory if you mention the lab. Right? Meanwhile, they were writing emails to each other, which were like, hey, the lab might be involved, we should probably check it out. So they were telling us one thing and telling themselves a completely different thing. That's the nature of the deception. That's, a, that's another cover-up right there. You know what I mean? So there's two cover-ups. Right. What is it about the nature of communist systems that uh, gives us a Chernobyl, that gives us a, an outbreak of the coronavirus? That's a, really, that's a really good question because this sort of relates to the overall theme of the book, right, which is that what we're dealing with here is a, a party state that uh, has no moral compunction, that will stoop to any level, do anything to protect its own political interests, which it places above everything else. So in other words, what we have to understand is that, first of all, the Chinese Communist Party is not looking out for us, for certainly, right? They're also not looking out necessarily for the Chinese people or even China's nation. They're looking out for the party. That means protecting the party. That means they will even subject their own people to horrendous suffering to protect the party. That's how you get a cover-up like this. That's how you can have a worldwide pandemic, and they're just like, you know what, screw you. We're not going to tell you anything. What are you going to do about it? That's their attitude, right, which is shocking and horrible, right? The other thing it tells you is that, you know, when, the, when they're setting up all of these engagements with us, whether it be scientific engagement or academic or political or trade, they're thinking about how the, to weaponize those engagements against us. So that means, like, Fauci and Collins and all these scientists who are like, how could these Chinese researchers do something bad? They're just trying to do research, and we're trying to save, save the world, and, you know, that how they wouldn't do that. 
What, what these American scientists don't realize is that in their system, in the CCP system, the scientists don't get to make those decisions. It's all controlled by the party, and the party will do anything, including let billions of people get sick and die, if they think it's in their political interest for the time being, and that's exactly what happens. The book is Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, G and the Battle for the 21st Century. We're talking with Josh Rogan, who's a, a global opinions columnist for the Washington Post. So you think... The big mistake was our scientists trusted the Chinese? Not only did we trust, we didn't verify. It's one thing to have a collaboration. It's another thing to let it just grow into a $200 million network of labs that no one's watching, not the intelligence community, not the scientists, not the government. And, of course, they took that technology and built another side of the lab with their military. That's what we now know. That's not a Trump administration claim alone. That's what the Biden administration confirmed. We, we built up a huge virus research industry in China, and they took it, and then they built another side of the lab, those sides we didn't know about, with their military to do God knows what. Okay, And, and that's, that's a perfect recipe for a disaster. And, you know, yeah, I could say that, like, you know, the American scientists, maybe they truly believe that their Chinese scientists' friends uh, – wouldn't do that to them, but then they're horrendously naive. God, I and say. When the, when, when the pandemic hit, it was all the people who understood China who knew who knew what the score was, and it was the national security people who really understood the nature of the CCP who looked at their actions and said, "Of course they're lying. Of course they're hiding stuff." Because that's what they did in the SARS epidemic twelve years pr- or twenty years prior. They just did it again. The problem was the first time it only killed eight thousand people. This time it killed three point five million and counting. When we come back with Josh Rogan, uh, we want to talk uh, more specifically about the battle for the 21st century, uh, chaos under heaven, Trump, she and the battle for the 21st century being the title of the book and, and how interesting it is and notable that 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 break, that pivot to open rivalry uh, took place during the Trump administration of all time. So, Josh, if you can hang on, we uh, we're going to get right back to it. Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. If you missed our first segment with Josh Rogan about his book, Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, she and the Battle for the 21st Century, go to the podcast at armstrongandgetty.com because we got in specifically to a lot of the uh, the coronavirus and the origins and the cover-up, not just by China, but by our own damn scientists as to how this whole thing started, which is really, really troubling. Josh, I don't know if you're familiar with the book Hundred Year Marathon by Pillsbury. We've, uh, we've talked about that sure. a, a b- book a lot. And, um, his argument, and he was with the, 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 the Nixon administration is going back to Nixon opening China. China has been playing us this entire time. And we thought, no, 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 this is good news. But they, they knew what they were doing all along. Did Trump in his unique way, uh, did he open the eyes of people in America and to the world of what China is really up to? Do you think? I think the administration uh, did a lot of that work, and it was really important. Of course, they, it wasn't all good. Some of it they did uh, in a pretty chaotic way. That's why my book is called Chaos Under Heaven. But, yeah, I know the book 100-Year Marathon, and I, Pillsbury is in the in my book, too. And, you know, the bottom line is that, you know, we had this 40-year, 50-year bet that if we just engaged the Chinese Communist Party as much as possible and integrated them into our system as much as possible, that they would liberalize and become more like us, first economically and then politically, and that would solve all of our problems that we could avoid, avoid the Cold War and all that. Uh, and whether or not you think that was a good bet or a bad bet, Pillsbury thinks it was a bad bet. Other people say that was a reasonable bet to make that time. 
My view is it doesn't really matter. Now we just have to realize that the bet has failed. Not because we weren't nice about it, not because we weren't good intentions, but because China decided to go another way. And especially since Xi Jinping came to power, they're taking China in the opposite direction. And they're becoming less liberal and more repressive and more aggressive. And, and then they're also interfering in our free and open societies. And we can't have that. And so now, whether or not you think it was good or bad bet, we have to realize that that's over and we have to have a new strategic response. And I think you, that's what you see the Biden administration actually saying very clearly. That doesn't mean we're doing it, but at least we're saying it, which is the, the first thing. So that pivot from frenemies to openly rivals, it was going to happen. It had to happen. Was there something about Trump and his personality that, that accelerated the timetable? Absolutely. You know, the thing about the Trump administration is that they didn't care about, you know, what were the sort of like the rules of Washington and that those rules of Washington constrained U.S.-China policy for all this time because the China issue was run by the, the China experts and they're the ones who got us largely into this mess in the first place. So you, it just opened the Overton window of what was possible inside the government. And then, uh, of course, there were a lot of competitions and not everybody inside the Trump administration agreed on China. You know, people like uh, Mike Pompeo and Steve Mnuchin totally disagreed, but the point is that all of new things, all of these new things were on the table. And so all of a sudden you started to see confronting China in our schools and in our capital markets and even in Hollywood and in the tech industry. And I'm not saying it all went perfectly. I'm just saying that all of those options were now at least being explored. And now, uh, the Biden administration is trying to step through them to see which parts of the Trump-China policy they want to keep and they want to discard it. And they're actually keeping a lot more than you would have thought, right? If that's, that should be a sign, you know, that the Biden people who are like hate all the Trump stuff in all the other countries, they hate the Trump, you know, Russia approach, they hate the Trump-Iran approach, but on China, they're basically continuing most of it. Uh, that means uh, they probably saw a lot of it in, in there that was uh, pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty interesting that for all the talk in the media and, you know, on the campaign trail about how awful Trump's approach was, the tariffs are still in place. A lot of the stuff's still in place, um, this far into Biden's presidency. Um, where, oh, I just keep thinking that the, the, the break is going to come with U.S. businesses in China and it's inevitable too. Like Joe said, it was inevitable. We went from frenemies to enemies. At what point do, does the NBA, does Apple, does everybody just have to stop doing business with China? Do you think that's coming? Yeah, no, I think the business community is still split because I think and I think the fight over this inside the Biden administration is still coming. Like they haven't appointed a lot of the people in like Treasury and these places. Those are the people who are going to push back and say, no, 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 no. We just got to get rid of the tariffs and go back to business to avoid the Cold War, whatever nonsense they're going to come up with. And so I think in the business community, you first of all, have the companies that are corporate hostages, right, like the Apples and the NBA, and they they know they've got a problem. Right. They're making money in China, but for how long? You know, and the squeeze is, is on. You know what I mean? So I think we should actually help those companies not get bullied around by the CCP. Uh, then the, on the other side, there's the financial services companies, which are pushing for more engagement because they uh, have a corrupt interest in, in getting out of this Cold War thing. So if you look at the Goldman Sachs's and the Bloomberg Barclays and the MSCI and the Morgan Stanley's of the world, uh, they're pumping money into China and taking Chinese money hand over fist because uh, they're pushing back against this realization that we're in this competition. Uh, so I think that's a that's a problem, actually, a problem that we have to be really clear eyed about. Oh, yeah. Well, I think it's going to be like, you know, decoupling with China is going to be like giving up meth, heroin and smoking all on the same <laughs> week. I mean, it's going to be an enormous disruption. 
Yeah, and, uh, you know, you have so many American elites on both sides of the aisle who are thoroughly compromised, who are corrupted, who are making money on both ends and have an interest in telling us that their national security threat is fake and that it's all just, you know, Mike Pompeo, Donald Trump, Cold War nonsense. But, you know, to them, I would say, well, then you have to accuse the Biden administration of being part of that, too, because uh, they're saying that the threat is real. They're saying that we have to have some limited decoupling, not total decoupling, but some limited decoupling to protect ourselves so that, you know, the next time the Chinese Communist Party gets mad about a tweet, the entire NBA doesn't suffer or the next time that there's a pandemic, that they don't have all their masks, all the masks in the world that they hang over our heads to tell us to shut up about the origin of the coronavirus, which is exactly what happened. Josh, I want to jam in one more question. Your book is Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, Xi, and the Battle for the 21st Century. This is short. Is it inevitable that China China took Hong Kong? Are they going to take take Taiwan? Nothing's inevitable, but the the threat is rising. And what I say is that the best way to ensure their aggression is to do nothing and that their appetite grows with the eating. And we've seen that appeasement doesn't work. So if we don't, if we want to avoid them taking Taiwan, then we have to stand up for Taiwan now. We have to do that now. We have to support Taiwan more now. And I hope the Biden administration will do that soon. Hey, Josh, thanks for your time. The great book, Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, Sheen, the Battle for the 21st Century. We hope to have you on again. That was good stuff right there. Yeah, thanks a million. Wow, great conversation. Armstrong and Getty. Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. We mentioned a school in the L.A. area, super expensive uh, private school. It's like fifty-six grand a year to go to school there, and there was some sort of they're teaching some sort of horse crap, critical race theory. Um, all white people are racist. Uh, stuff. And some, the whole system's racist. We must tear it down. And some parents complained. Here's an even more expensive school in the New York area. I'd never heard of the Spence School, where people are paying 85k to send their kids to grade school. They call it that because it's so expensive. I'd, I'd like to attend for like just a day to see what you get for eighty five thousand dollars. That's a lot of money. You get to say you send your kids there. Because you're a hedge fund zillionaire. I mean, oh, yes, my kids go to the Spence School. Oh. Well, you'd have to be already incredibly wealthy because that's enough money that if you sent them to public school and saved that much their entire schooling career, they'd never have to work. You could just right. invest it and that's never work. Right. Because that's a lot of money. Anyway, this elite Your man. Child. This is... <laughs> Thank you, Michael. The audio art of Michelangelo. You child followed by the cash register sound. There you go. You see what I did there? Oh, yeah, I did see Brilliant. what you did there. Yeah, that's good. This that's elite nice. Manhattan school is under fire for showing students a video that a mom said tarred and feathered white women and sent a letter to parents claiming it was a significant mistake. So the teacher that came up with this is apologizing, and the head of the school is saying, we're going to retrain the teachers. You're going to retrain the teachers? Because you, you, you had mistakenly not done the training that said a video about tarring and feathering white moms... Uh, it's not a good idea, and you needed to do that. The video openly derides, humiliates, and ridicules white women, says one Hispanic mom who didn't like it. The kids, the kids sat there in their graduation dresses while the white mothers of the white students, many of whom volunteer, donate, call, email, do whatever to the, the school asked them to do to be good parents, uh, were tarred and feathered in a video that the teachers showed them while the white female teachers were mocked. Um... 
The episode included uh, this woman who's in charge telling a writer, I believe that you are not concerned with how annoying white women can be. It was included in the video. And they used lyrics from the song WAP uh, that they rewrote to talk about how uh, awful white women are. For the graduation! Hmm. And I guess they thought it would be funny, because everybody's in agreement that white women are the worst, aren't they? Oh, man. Can you imagine? Ha, ha, ha. Well, you got to retrain that teacher to not do stuff like that. How crazy have we gotten? I know. And this is among the elite of the elite. Certainly in terms of finances. Yeah. Racism is hot, man. It's in. Do it. It just, it's got to be against white people. So Portland police got uh, the, their entire riot squad resigned. Now, this is uh, what I heard. Joe has a different story, so this is interesting. Portland police's entire riot squad resigned after a cop was indicted for striking, quote, an activist photographer, who the cops say was just a rioter with a baton involved in a violent protest and was trying to set a gov- government uh, building on fire. So he's swinging the baton, trying to set a government building on fire. The the riot police tried to stop him, and now a cop is being um, uh, charged for that. Yeah, it's really the case itself is interesting. I watched the video, and and the one shot was absolutely warranted. The second one, I don't know, maybe. But the situation is so much more than that indictment and that incident. So the entire rapid response team resigned, as Jack said. They all volunteer for that assignment, and they voted to resign due to a perceived lack of support from City Hall and from the DA over the past year during more than 100 consecutive nights of dealing with violent protests. Not not always violent, but eventually, that's right, night after night. Never forget, those of you who don't live in Portland or in the West, more than 100 consecutive nights of rioting. Lieutenant Franz Schoening, who's supervisor on the term, team, confirmed the vote. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so many demonstrations devolved into clashes with officers late at night. You've seen the video, right? At times ended with vandalism, property damage, fires set. And the crowd control team was often the unit directed to disperse crowds after the police declared unlawful assemblies or riots. Um, so, And there have been multiple lawsuits against the cops. But here's what the cops said. And I thought it was really eloquent. Um, uh, bah, 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 bah. The Portland Police Association sent the mayor and police chief a letter urging both to stand up and publicly support police bureau members who voluntarily serve on the rapid response team. They urged the mayor and city hall to stop using RRT members as political pawns, called the team's members exhausted and injured, and wrote that the only glue holding their team together was their commitment to serve the city. Our RRT members do not volunteer to have Molotov cocktails, fireworks, explosives, rocks, bottles, urine, feces, and other dangerous objects thrown at them. Nor do they volunteer to have threats of rape, murder, and assaults on their families hurled at them. They do not volunteer to suffer serious injuries, to be subject to warrantless criticism and face allegations by elected officials, or to suffer through baseless complaints and lengthy investigations devoid of due process. And then, here's my favorite part. He said, these officers find themselves in a no-win situation. They're told to stand down and only intervene when things have gotten so out of control that they have no other option than to use high levels of force to regain control of unlawful demonstrations. Then they're criticized for their perceived inaction at the front end and are criticized for their inevitable use of force on the back end. They can't win because of the position others have put them in. 
which I think is a great description of what's gone on in Portland. No, do nothing. Do nothing. Do nothing. Okay, this is truly dangerous. Clear it out. Clear the whole thing out. And then the politicians sit there at the council meeting. They watch the videotape. They rub their chin, and they say... Yes, in the midst of that melee when the fireworks and the lasers and the urine and the feces and the clubs and the rest of it are flying, when you hit that man the first time, I think that was justified, but the second was not. You will be prosecuted. Next video, please. And the cops are saying, F it, we're out. We're out. And who could blame them? I wonder how it ends. I wonder what's next. Well, there's the, there's a... Uh... A problem nationwide of cops retiring or people not applying for jobs because we've got a, a friend of the show who retired early last year and said he had no he he didn't realize he knew he was under a lot of pressure but he had no realize uh, he had no idea how much it was bothering him until he retired this new world where you know there's a lot of riding going on you're gonna have to show up and man you end up on somebody's phone um thinking you're doing the right thing and it looks different or whatever. And your life changes, or you become a household name overnight. Right. We had a uh, beloved listener to the Armstrong and Getty Show write us really an interesting and insightful email a couple of weeks ago in which he pointed out, he, he trains cops. He pointed out that cops have gone from, as an incident unfolds, asking themselves, what should I do morally and ethically here? That was their old question. The new question is, what is the least I can legally do? Just to avoid any involvement in anything that turns out to be videotaped and they become infamous and taken out of context and marches and riots and and, and looting and arson are done in their names, even though they did nothing wrong. They just, the, the reality has changed so much. And, uh, you know, like like most things, we've gone from uh, lack of scrutiny of bad policing to now this incredible spasm of uh, the cops can do no right. And as Jack pointed out, they're, they're, people are leaving police forces by the thousands and thousands. It's by the hundreds in individual cities. They've lost hundreds of officers in Seattle, which is just nuts. Yeah, it is. I wonder if the city fathers and mothers of uh, Portland will find a way to get the rapid response team back together and say, okay, here are the new policies, because this is a, this is a crisis. Yeah, I mentioned my, uh, my brother who'd been carrying a gun for all kinds of jobs in the military and out for his whole life said he doesn't want to have a job where he carries a gun anymore just because ending up in one of these situations. Yeah. Yeah, too if, much if we, negative can come of it. If we have people that don't want to do that job, we're going to have problems. Well, the one of the women that's running for uh, mayor, and she's tied for second place currently, this Wiley woman, she uh, came out yesterday with in a plan. In New York? In New York. Mm-hmm. She came out with this plan yesterday to uh, to take a billion dollars out of the NYPD, part of the whole defund the police thing, which is popular with practically nobody except for the craziest 5% of America. Right, right. How about defund government programs that don't do any good? Have you ever heard anybody say that? No. That's funny. You'd think that'd be more of a common thing that people run on. No. Not only does nobody say it, nobody even thinks of doing it. Hey, it's, um... It's, they're trying to balance the the budget on the backs of the... Fill in the blank. The speaking blank. of sketchy government programs and all over the country, they're trying this. Oh, wait, 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 I got to get to the five-hour workday, too. I meant to pay oh, that yeah. off earlier. Anyway. Um, places where they've tried to put the homeless people in hotels, which seemed like a good idea during the COVID. The hotels were empty. So in some hotels, they put the homeless in there. In New York, they've decided, okay, tourism's coming back. Y'all got to get. 
Anyway, uh, we got this text. My wife works at a homeless hotel because we were talking about this earlier. A common trick is to claim that the young friend of yours is a nurse, probably female. Mm-hmm. Turns out they're both addicts and she gets drugs and his social security money in exchange for sex. She so is stay in the hotel with your nurse, who's your right. live-in concubine, I guess. Well, no, she, she doesn't have to live in. She just has to stop by. There are no sure. visitors allowed. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a fine concubine if she's willing to move in. That's above and beyond the call of the duty of the concubine. But anyway, so that's how you work that situation. Wow. Okay, fair enough. Thanks for the real-life perspective. See, I was talking about this poor old bastard who got run out of his hotel, and I think he probably is a poor old bastard because his caregiver would stop by now and again. Um and and that may be legit, but see, if I were to then unilaterally design policy based on my perception without getting testimony from people who are in it, who are on the street, who deal with it day to day, that leads to to uh, awful, dumb, misguided, you know, unicornian policy. How about a little transition music, Michael? Music. I've never heard this one. It's making me forget what we were talking about, which is the point. <laughs> All right. The merry-go-round just keeps speeding up. <laughs> Great. Is, is that the tunnel scene from Willy Wonka? <laughs> Going faster. <laughs> that uh, that gave me dread. It did. I, <laughs> and my, 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 the back of my neck is sweating. I feel like I'm about to get knifed by a clown. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> What's happening? What's happening? <laughs> That so, was a nightmare. Oh, my God. Mannequins are walking. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> <Wait> again, Michael. Make that humans pay. Jeez. That's too much. Too right. much. Make it stop again. If somebody's half asleep somewhere, they're going to be. They're going to wet their bed. <laughs> that kid was afraid of the Nazi flag. Just fell to pieces. That music was terrifying. <laughs> Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. Everything went black, and all I could feel was just muscle and skin all around me. Did I just get bit by a shark, or no, it's not a shark. I'm in a whale's mouth, and then all of a sudden I saw light, white water everywhere, and all of a sudden I was thrown from his mouth. He was shaking his head, trying to eject me out of his mouth. There's a diver that ended up actually inside a whale who is trying to swallow him. Actually inside for, he thinks, 30 to 40 seconds. Yikes. And, and he thought to himself, he said, there's no way I'm getting out of here. I'm done. I'm dead. All I could think of was my boys. They're 12 and 15. Oh, man. For some reason, the whale decided not to eat him and then kind of like threw him back up or spit him <laughs> out, more or I less. I think the reason was whales, whales don't eat people. <laughs> He got a mouthful of dude and was like, what the hell is this? Well, well you'd taste his rubber, right? Because he was in his diving outfit and had his yeah. tank on and everything like that. Yeah. He said yeah. It was, I, he was trying to swallow me. I was completely inside. It was completely black. Wow. 56-year-old well, guy. Well, and your mind would be whirling at a million miles per hour. What the hell is going on here? Like he said, am I in a shark? It's a, wait a minute. He was afraid it was a great white. He didn't, he didn't feel any teeth. Yeah, there are lots of great whites where he is, as I understand it. Holy crap. Yeah, that's a rough day. Broke his legs. 
Oh, really? Oof, yeah. I didn't even know that. Yeah. Or at least one of them, yeah. Yeah, whales have powerful jaws. Powerful. Oh, that suck. You know, it's not powerful as the reasoning behind critical race theory. There's is... almost no chance I'm going to be eaten by a whale on land, though. So I can avoid that problem. True that. True yeah. that. Relax. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. it's not like it's going to happen to me. Normally, I'd say don't let down your guard. Go ahead, let it down. <laughs> a whale is not going to swallow me today, almost certainly. It's extremely unlikely. I'm going to read you the best comment I've heard about this, and then we will play the tape in question, and then I will read that comment again. John McWhorter, thinker, writer, linguist at Columbia, among other things, writer. Uh, did I say writer twice? That's why I'm not a writer. I'm repetitive. Anyway, <laughs> oh, he said of the clip you're about to hear, in which academic discipline is this circular, naive, deer-caught-in-the-headlights response to a basic and urgent question considered insightful or excellent? A national culture of exempting this, which sadly is typical of him, from judgment, is unintentionally racist itself, pointing out that the critical race theory thing is utterly incoherent, and pretending that it isn't is racist in that it's treating black folks like they're children or something and shouldn't be held to the same standards as others. And John McWhorter is a black man, you should probably know. Here is one of the ideological godfathers of the modern critical race theory movement, Ibram X. Kendi, at a, a forum. You talked about the importance of defining racism. But I, but I, unless I missed it, which is possible, I didn't. I didn't hear your personal definition. Is there is there one that you would offer us? Like, how do you define racism? Sure. So racism, I would define it um, as a collection uh, of racist policies that lead to racial inequity that are substantiated by racist ideas. <laughs> sure. A, a collection uh, of racist policies that lead to racial inequity that are substantiated by racist ideas. And anti-racism is a pretty simple using the same terms. Anti-racism is a collection of anti-racist policies leading to racial, anybody want to take a guess? Equity that are substantiated by anti-racist ideas. Yeah, the nice uh, compliant white fellow tried to say equality. Luckily, he was uh, overshadowed by the the herd of other people, but um, equity, not equality. Uh, wow. So racism is racist policies that equal racist, racist outcomes because of racial, racist policy, racist. That, 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 as uh, John McWhorter said, in which academic discipline is this circular, naive, deer caught in the headlights response to a basic and urgent question considered insightful or excellent? It's just it's it's claptrap. It's mumbo jumbo, mm. and and it should be controversial, and it should be an argument we're having because it is all over our schools. They're trying to indoctrinate your kids into just abhorrent philosophies of looking at race. But as we've predicted, Jack, as we've we've been talking about this for a couple of years now. Any real productive, interesting, heartfelt, smart conversation about the struggles of black america hispanic america race in america whatever they're all being pushed to the sidelines as people are shouting at each other over this garbage which is really pretty unfortunate no matter who you are certainly the hot thing 
Yeah, it's just, it's awful. And you dumb, dumb white people who are falling for this, this mumbo jumbo. When some of the smartest people among us have great, coherent, data driven, you know, thoughts on race and, and lifting up black America and the rest of it. But no, now we're following these Pied Pipers down the path. It's just, it's a mistake. And, and it is not an accident that one of their beliefs is, well, logic and data, that's the white people's way. Well, okay. So you're telling me I can't challenge your, uh, a formula for uh, society or your indoctrination of little kids in schools. Based on data and, 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 and logic and, and critical thinking, then, uh, yeah, it's not a coincidence that they argue that because if you do, they lose. God, what was, I was listening to a podcast the other day about a completely different topic, had nothing to do with race or anything like that. But the woman said at one point, you know, people accuse me of being a perfectionist, which I hate because obviously we all know perfectionism is a, is a sign of white supremacy. And I thought we do obviously all believe perfectionism is a sign of white supremacy that is leaked into so many people's brains that they just take right. it as fact what a punctuality joke. perfectionism all that sort of stuff is white supremacy wild armstrong and Getty.